The Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. We got lots of very popular programming for you tonight because tonight we will be hearing from Professor Colleen Aldous. She wrote a piece on Biz News uh, which said that perhaps we are trusting a small group of experts, she reckons, uh, to the detriment of society in that people are actually dying as a result of it. She has done an enormous amount of work on ivermectin. We'll be able to get more from her later in the program. And another story which has gone viral is by Nimola. Now, you might remember last week we ran a open letter to Cyril Ramaphosa from an anonymous member of the business community. Well, that anonymous member has now become Nimola, taken up a nom de plume. You would remember Nimola was the a German theologian who Adolf Hitler crossed swords with. That is the nom de plume that our community member is using. And we'll hear from uh, Nimola, read by my uh, colleague Nadia Swart tonight, a little later. Lots of interesting stuff coming up. Magnus Haystick, who's always one of our most popular commentators on this program. And then the Financial Times of London gets into some depths today about two things that are very South African related. The variable interest entities which is a way that the Chinese companies have been raising money through which Naspass owns its shares in Tencent, which gives Naspass its value, is illegal in China. Big problem. Uh, we'll also hear from the Financial Times about Glencore, a company listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, run by South Africans, and one of its members has admitted to being involved in fraud and uh, bribery and corruption in Africa. So, Wow, got a show coming up for you. But first, of course, as always, we start with the news and the markets. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Alec Hogg, and here's another business colleague of mine, Nadia Swat, with the news headlines. SA-born biotech billionaire Patrick Sunshong is backing a COVID-19 vaccine candidate that he sees as having potential as a universal booster of other pandemic shots. Immunity Bio, of which the 68-year-old holds about 13%, is developing a vaccine called HAD5 that's intended to specifically activate T-cells that scientists believe are a key part of the immune response against covid this quarter, the South African-born biotech ty- tycoon will begin trials in the country, the scene of what he calls a COVID-19 firestorm as the Delta variant drives a third wave of infections, the peak of which has surpassed two earlier waves. Most vaccines work to elicit immune proteins called antibodies, blocking the spike protein that the coronavirus uses to enter cells. Culver City-based Immunity Bio is trying to raise T-cells against both the spike and another viral protein called the nucleocapsid, which could make it ideal for use as a booster for different types of vaccines, Sun Xiong said in an interview. The U.S. government will begin shipping a donation of almost 5.7 million Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccines to South Africa on Wednesday, with the first consignment expected to land on Saturday, a senior U.S. government official has told Business Day. The donation will provide a significant boost to SA's immunization program, which, after a series of delays, got off to a slower-than-anticipated start in mid-May due to supply constraints. As of Tuesday evening, a total of 6.8 million vaccine doses had been administered, but only 2.6 million people were fully immunized with either the single-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the double-shot Pfizer jab. South Africa's Treasury expects a relief package for businesses and individuals affected by this month's daily riots to cost 38.9 billion rand. Additional spending will amount to over 36 billion rand, while almost 2.7 billion rand will be reallocated from within the budget, Edgar Sishi, the acting head of the budget office, said in an online briefing. The turmoil could cost the country more than 48 billion rand in lost output, SARS Commissioner Edward Kisweta said at the briefing. Tax collections have exceeded expectations this year, 
especially from the mining and financial services industries, and the additional revenue, according to Kiswetta, will be sufficient to fund the relief package. Well, that's a little bit of good news, although we are sitting at such a huge budget deficit at the moment that, uh, well, we shouldn't just be managing to fund all these issues. We should actually be trying to claw back the uh, benefits that come from the commodity boom should be seen by the country overall. Anyway, uh, hopefully they're being seen on the stock market by investors. And the man who watches it for us is Justin Rowe Roberts. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was up at 68,300, predominantly as NASPIS and Process rebounded around 7% on the day. In the currency markets, the Rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 Rand 80 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand and 54 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand and 48 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,798 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 28,000 Rand. Brent crude is also flat at $74.90 a barrel. And the Bitcoin price is steady at 600,000 Rand. Apple posted the biggest spring quarter profit in its 45-year history, leading a streak of record-setting earnings for technology companies, even as the pandemic continues to weigh on the global economy. Not to be overlooked, Google parent Alphabet and Microsoft also said Tuesday that their quarterly earnings excelled, underscoring how the pandemic has shifted life and work online and strengthened some of the world's biggest and wealthiest companies. Despite the record numbers, Apple shares were down on chip shortages that have affected the entire industry, with CEO Tim Cook expecting the shortages to affect revenues by around $4 billion. Chinese tech stocks continue to be punished by a widening antitrust and data security crackdown and have lost billions of dollars in market value over the past few days as a new sell-off hit almost every single company in the sector. Their media trigger new rules that would basically wipe out much of the booming after-school tutoring sector. While tightening restrictions have long been on the horizon, the scope and severity of the crackdown still caught investors by surprise. Naspers and Process Crownjewel Tencent has been one of the worst affected, with the shares down around 20% this week alone. Surprisingly, Naspers and Process were both well in the green on the local bars today. Well, we'll have a lot more on that story about China and uh, coming up from the Financial Times uh, team in London and also some insight. We'll find out from Magnus Hastick what he thinks. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, July 28th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Silicon Valley reported quarterly earnings yesterday, and they blew away expectations. Meanwhile, an oil trader pleaded guilty to bribing government officials in Nigeria. Plus, China's crackdown on education companies is bad news for investors. But Beijing's regulatory move is not out of character. A mistake that people make with China, they believe Beijing's biggest concern is about the economy, and so they're not going to really upset the gravy train here. However, there's another side to China's economy at the moment, and that is control. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Yesterday, we got a few big tech earnings for the latest quarter, which means I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at you right now. So just bear with me, okay? Ready? Microsoft beat analyst revenue expectations by about $2 billion. Google's parent company Alphabet beat revenue expectations by nearly $6 billion. But Apple? Apple beat revenue expectations by a whopping $8.1 billion. The bottom line here is that big tech is doing really well this year even with regulatory crackdowns by governments all over the world. I reached out to Richard Waters for a second time this week to put these big numbers into context. You know, I feel like we kind of get out the thesaurus every quarter now and try and find new superlatives because these numbers really are quite extraordinary. So you have to put this in context. There are good reasons why we might think tech earnings and growth would start to slow at this point. Um, This is normally a fairly quiet period for Apple, relatively quiet. You know, they had their big iPhone launch ahead of the holidays. People are starting to go back to work, uh, back to school and so on. And so, you know, to some degree, we might expect demand for digital services generally to start to fall back a little bit. And yet none of that is happening. You know, what we're seeing is just extraordinary growth. And I think this is a quarter that will give comfort or confidence to the people who've been saying, 
something significant's happened in the world now. This wasn't a one-off. People's behavior has changed. People's demand for the cloud, for home entertainment, for digital medicine and digital education. These are permanent changes. Richard Waters is the FT's West Coast editor. He covers all things tech. Now, a story about Glencore, one of the world's biggest mining and commodity trading companies. Yesterday, a former Glencore trader pleaded guilty in the U.S. to bribing government officials in Nigeria in return for lucrative oil contracts. Anthony Stimler, a U.K. citizen, worked on Glencore's West Africa desk until 2019. Neil Hume, our natural resources editor, has the details. It's already known that Glencore was under investigation by the Department of Justice. They subpoenaed the company back in 2018, looking at alleged bribery and corruption in three countries. So it doesn't come as um, a great surprise, but it is the first time we've seen a former Glencore employee, I think, I'm right in saying, pleading guilty to a bribery charge. Now, we should note that Glencore came out and issued a statement about Stimler's conduct. They described it as unacceptable And Glencore said it is fully cooperated with authorities. But, Neil, you know, what does this case tell us about the wider effort to stop corruption in the natural resources sector? I mean, it's not a great look for the company or indeed the industry, which has been suffering the commodity trading industry with a whole host of problems with bribery and corruption. A number of Glencore's peers have also faced scrutiny from US regulators. Some have been fined. I mean, I think large scale commodity trading is a very difficult business to do without working through intermediaries or agents in resource rich countries. These do give you the ability to sort of get in and talk to ministers and win deals. But obviously, there's there's potential for corruption. I mean, if you look at many of these cases, what seems to happen is intermediary companies or agents, you know, are paid a fee. Very often, this fee is inflated. And a lot of that fee is creamed off the top and then given to government officials in return for these oil contracts. And as we saw in the Glencore case, these contracts can come with more favorable delivery terms under these schemes, or they can even come with, you know, higher grades of crude. So Neil, I'm curious, is the increasing focus on environment, social and governance issues, ESG issues, having any impact on efforts to clean up the industry? The industry is facing a lot of pressure from investors to up its game in terms of ESG, especially when the mining industry is talking about, you know, providing the metals that will be needed for this sort of green, cleaner future. So it can't, on the one hand, claim that it's helping the energy transition, on the other, turn a blind eye to some of these other governance and social issues around corruption and what it's doing in resource-rich countries. So, I mean, it does need to get a grip on this, I think, and be a bit more transparent and actually show that some of the actions it's taking have got teeth. If it doesn't, then I think regulators may come and do the job for it. Neil Hume is the FT's natural resources editor. Last week, the Chinese Communist Party announced regulations that will make it illegal for tutoring companies to earn profits, raise capital, or list abroad. The clampdown on the $100 billion educational industry led to Chinese stocks selling off in response. On Tuesday, that sell-off spread to the tech sector. Shares in internet group Tencent fell 10%, Alibaba was down nearly 8%, and the Nasdaq index dropped a little more than 1% on fears about Beijing's widening regulatory assault. Michael McKenzie is the FT's U.S. investment editor, and he joins me now. Hi, Michael. Hi, Mark. So, Michael, how bad has the shock to the global markets from the latest China crackdown been? Well, in boxing terms, it's been a classic blindside, really. I think most fund managers were sticking with China. And indeed, the flows show that money is still going into ETFs that track Chinese internet funds. But this has also highlighted a particular aspect of how investors, particularly on Wall Street, have been investing in Chinese companies. They've been doing it through a structure that's called a VIE. This has now highlighted how dangerous this practice is because it's essentially illegal in China. And China is now clamping down on this. And there could be more room for the changes and disruption in markets. Yeah, let's unpack that a bit. Um, VIE stands for Variable Interest Entity. Why are they seen as such a big problem here? Well, this has been a popular way for US investors to own shares or or have actually have exposure to Chinese companies. In reality, a lot of these structures are set up in the Cayman Islands, and they're basically holding companies that are designed to allow Chinese entities to attract foreign capital 
because they are forbidden from allowing foreign investors to have any ownership over big sectors that are important in China, such as technology. So what you actually have here is a type of structure that gives investors the ability to gain from the economic benefits that go to a Chinese company through an appreciation in the stock price. But they don't actually have any control and they don't really have any legal recourse to the assets of the company either. So you've sort of now with China saying, hang on, we don't want this. This structure isn't legal. Suddenly the stock prices are just have just collapsed for these education companies. And there are concerns that you know more of these type structures are also going to be off the table. So uh, until now, both Beijing and U.S. investors like BlackRock and Fidelity, um, they've been happy to gloss over the risks of the VIE structure. Uh, could that change now? I think it's going to because, I mean, ultimately, this is not a legal structure from China's point of view. When I spoke with a lawyer earlier this week, he explained to me that a mistake that people make with China is that they believe that Beijing's biggest concern is about the economy and money. And so they're not going to really upset the gravy train here. However, there's another side to China's economy at the moment, and that is about control. And obviously, the crackdown on education actually makes sense. If you want to encourage China to alleviate its demographic problem and actually for Chinese families to have more children, education costs is a huge part of an issue here for many middle class um, families. And so you can see why the authorities are saying, look, we're going to make these education companies nonprofits. However, it does mean that by lashing out at these, some of these big companies and trying to control them, it does suggest that they're going to go after more of these structures that have been so popular with Wall Street, the VIE. Is there any upside to any of this, Michael? Well, the potential ray of light is that by focusing on VIEs and coming up with a new, potentially a new way of attracting foreign capital, ultimately you're going to get greater clarity. And you have to remember here that China is wants to open up its financial markets to global investors. It's encouraging foreign asset managers, for example, to come in and do joint ventures and to set up independent fund management companies in China. I mean, BlackRock recently gained approval for both a wealth manager and a fund manager back in June. So we are going to see an opening up of China's financial markets to global investors. But I guess part of that process involves much tighter standards for how Chinese companies list and how they attract capital. This is something that should surprise investors, but it likely means it's going to be painful in the near term for those that ignored the warnings, for example, about uh, VIEs. Michael McKenzie is the FT's U.S. investment editor. Thanks for your time, Michael. Thanks, Mark. And before we go, a word on how law firms are desperately trying to retain talent. There's been a record number of buyout deals in the past six months, which means a higher demand for legal services. But all these M&A deals have created burnout, which makes for a slim supply of lawyers. Law groups really want to hang on to the people doing the work. And so U.S. firms are offering unprecedented bonuses to junior and mid-career lawyers. A recruiter said one firm in particular was offering retention bonuses worth about $250,000 to mid-level lawyers with job offers elsewhere. These golden handcuff bonuses, as they're called, come with a catch. If the employee leaves before a certain date, they have to return the money. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Magnus Haystick is the founder of Brenthurst Wealth. We had a fantastic uh, webinar last week, Magnus, 1,000 people. And unfortunately, there were so many people who couldn't get in. In fact, I think the final number was like 1,300 people came to the webinar, but we had a cap of 1,000. So there must have been people who were dropping off and others coming in all the time. But it shows the interest and it shows how uh, very concerned people are at the moment about the state of the finances here in South Africa. Indeed, Alec, yeah, it was a great success and it shows the power of, of business, And but it was also a reflection of the level of concern because if you sit back and you look at what happened two weeks prior, you know, on a global scale, I don't think any modern uh, industrialized country has seen those kind of scenes. And if you see now, they're adding up all the damages. We're talking about 200 plus shopping centers that were looted and burned to the ground or just about burnt to the ground. I mean, that is just unheard of. 
So people are concerned and they are trying to find questions. And we don't have all the answers. We tell a lot of people we simply don't have all the answers, but we do look at the basics and try and advise them as best. Uh, and I think a lot of people have now realized that the investment world is not as they want it to be, but it is how it is. And I think suddenly people are changing their perception on certain asset classes, which they wouldn't uh, until recently even consider, like selling some of their uh, properties or selling some of their local share portfolios and looking at a kind of a plan B option. And they realize that some of the assets are at risk. And then we also have now, we can talk about it, the, the, the collapse in the share price and NASPAS process. And I saw what you wrote this morning. But we've been writing and everybody's been writing for many, many years that South African investors via their pension funds and portfolios and unit trusts are massively overexposed to one single company. And, 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 and it's fantastic if it does well, but if it turns around like it has, it's going to hurt. And I've looked at some of the local funds that have a very high exposure to NOSPAS, and, and most of the companies do. They are really going to take the pain when they report at the end of the month. It is a, a, a well, in every sense, it's a disaster for South Africa, but there've been those to be, to be fair to them. Sean Pesh has often been on our platform, uh, and he's been saying that watch out because there is a, a, first of all, the structure is not as secure as it is in most countries. And secondly, if the Chinese government decides to do things differently, there's no court of appeal. There's no appeal whatsoever. They just, enacted and that's exactly what they've done but it, i suppose it just comes back to the whole story that magnus that investment carries risk and best you know what that risk is and 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 be honest that sometimes we ignore the risk and sean has been writing about this and and, and before that my ex-colleague and crutty uh, from the days at the star she's been writing a number of times over the years that be very careful about that ownership structure in china is not what you think it is. It is a risk factor. And it, it impacts via everything, via the PIC, via the pension funds in South Africa. It impacts on your pension. So uh, we've all taken a knock if we are exposed to that asset loss. And as you quite rightly say, the world is trying to find out, work out what exactly the Chinese government is trying to do. It seems like they have a strategy and nobody really knows what that strategy is. So, you know, it's it's going to impact on, on everybody and you must make a call. Do you write it out or do you look for something else? Uh, I don't know. I don't have any NOSPAS and I haven't had for a very long time. But uh, it, it hurt me and when it was running away. But um, now I'm feeling a little bit better because I've been also concerned about that exposure. I rather like, if I do like tech and global tech, I can get it through a global tech fund which is not that exposed to uh, an ASPAS. But if you look at even some of the uh, funds I looked at last night, Orbis, the global equity fund run by the same guys who run Alan Gray, they, uh, that's their biggest single stock or the second biggest stock in their portfolio. So there's a lot of value destruction that's come through. But the real story is uh, we should have seen it last November when there was that attack on uh, Jack Ma on Alibaba. He he um, dared to question uh, Beijing, and from there it's just got worse and worse. The Alipay uh, listing, which was pulled, Didi, which was even worse when the li they did list it, the Chinese version of Uber, they did allow it to go forward, and then immediately it was listed, and billions of dollars were put into it by American investors. They then effectively smashed the business by saying, uh, we want the, these regulations to be imposed. Now they're coming for Tencent, um, uh, Alibaba, and so on. And we're seeing the consequence of it. So the Chinese government is a, is a command control communist government uh, who did allow Deng Xiaoping's view of it doesn't matter if it's a black or a white cat as long as it catches mice to build the economy for a long period of time. It appears as though they've reversed that. And that's what's panicking people. It was a fantastic uh, <clears throat> program I watched on, on Bloomberg over the weekend, and they spent about 30 minutes on this topic. Why? What, 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 what is the intention? And they, 
They, they had flashbacks of Jack Ma three, four years ago saying, we tell the regulator what to do. We are in charge. And then, of course, after the events and he was humbled, he basically just turned out down and says, we now, we, now, we now support the government in what they're doing, full stop, end of comment, and they, they took him off stage. And I think the, the Chinese government is, is busy with something which, which I, I, I can't work out, but it is hurting the world. It's hurting the tech companies it's worth, uh, and it's hurting South Africa. We have a lot of money invested in Tencent and we've just uh, taken a big smack. The other thing that we did in the uh, business portfolio, and we sold out yesterday out of NASPAS and Discovery. Discovery have got a big asset. Well, it was a big asset uh, in Pingan Health uh, Insurance in uh, in China, which was writing 25 billion a year in premium income. It's a really, really big company, which they own 25% of, uh, of. But who knows now what that's worth? The other sale we did was Tongart. Uh, looking at it as a as a good turnaround situation, we were excited about what was going on in Zimbabwe. But Tongart is a is a KZN company. And uh, KZN is not the same again after what's happened this month. It's, it's got land and it's in the wrong spot. Um, if it was in the Western Cape, you would have had a different tune, I would, I would imagine. But it's right there where everything happened. And as you quite rightly point out, everybody has, is, is evaluating further developments, uh, looking at valuation of existing land and or property structures. Because the question is, can this happen again? And there's no guarantee that government will prevent it. They've been shown up very, very badly in the way they prepared, no intelligence. They were literally flapping around for four or five days. And they still don't seem to have a handle on it because the threat has now moved to the ports. And the ports have now declared a force majeure. We're already one of the worst ports in the world. And now we can't get our stuff out of the harbors and back into the harbors, which is another blow to the credibility of South Africa. One doesn't know if this is linked uh, nobody's talking about it, but it is another body blow to the poor South African consumer stroke investor. It just keeps on coming, these body blows. Yeah, that's a, a big story on the, uh, well, cyber blackmail might be behind it, but it appears as though it's it's more politically motivated. And as you say, Durban used to be, used to be the busiest port in Africa. It's now ranked way down the scale. There's just so much that needs to be fixed in South Africa. But Magnus, before we move off that, you are you know a lot about property. Uh, you've invested a lot in property over the years here and elsewhere in the world. Would you be investing in KZN property now, or would you ever contemplate going there? You know, it's a it's a loaded question in in some regards. To to buy to do what to go and live there to go and buy as we. Uh, um, Holiday home, probably not. I think there's going to be a fallout. There might be a time when the property values are so cheap because there are some fantastic developments. There's Zimbali, Zimbiti, uh, Blythdale. There are some fantastic developments, and it is a fantastic place to live and, and, and play and play golf. You and I played at Zimbali many times. But it's what's around you, and we've now seen how uh, the social unrest can have an impact on your property values. So the answer is, at the moment, probably not. Interesting, looking at the way the RAND has performed, if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic or just into the pandemic, we were sitting at around 17 to the US dollar. It improved all the way down to 13.50 very, very shortly before the unrest in KZN. It hasn't really reacted that badly. It's back up to 15, which I suppose is a significant uh, a, a reversal, but that was the time, and I think you you were saying it quite strongly that around the thirteen fifty fourteen rand to the U.S. dollar level was the time to to really take advantage and to invest offshore. Did your clients do that? You know, but I think we were just a bit lucky. I think you know, I do follow the cycles of the rand, and at that between below fourteen. There were a lot of technical factors coming through the saying maybe the rand is not over, over, overbought. And the, and the dollar is starting to, to strengthen. And, and we take our cue from the dollar. We don't look, look at the rand. The rand doesn't influence the dollar. It's the other way around. And we saw technically the, the pound and the, and the dollar was starting to improve. There were a uh, change in emphasis in, in federal policy in the United States. That determines the, the currency. And on that point, 
South African investors need to know they've been very lucky over the last five years. The rand is actually not weakened. It's gone up and down, up and down, up and down, but it is where it was about five years ago, surprisingly. But if you look at the, uh, the Fed speak and they talk about the dot plot of where interest rates will be over the next five years. Now, that's a very technical thing and it's just a very rough gauge, but that tells us three to four years from now, American interest rates would have normalized at between three and four percent. That to me tells me I must be buying dollars now and selling my rent. Because if that happens, if you can get four percent on your American money, you will be selling every emerging currency in the world to get four percent because that is a very, very good rate of return, a risk free return. So it's not only a South African thing. It's if we go to interest rates three to four percent from now, four years from now, or three years. Mark my words: the rand and other emerging currencies will be substantially weaker. If you have a look at the coverage internationally, and we've been referring uh, premium subscribers in particular to articles in, for instance, the Economist, um, it's various other major publications around the world. The Economist was a particularly uh, aggressive piece that they've run in their latest edition. You have to believe the Financial Times has also been in a similar frame of mind. You have to believe that the concussion, the knock-on effect uh, of what happened earlier this month in KwaZulu-Natal and parts of Gauteng is going to be in, is going to be, be reflected in the investment market somewhere. And yet the RAND, not so much yet. Look, the RAND is, 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 is currently boosted by the balance of trade, which is driven by the massive profits the, the platinum mines have generated over the last six to eight months. So we were very, very lucky that the platinum price shot up and these profit figures coming through from the platinum com- companies are enormous. We're still benefiting from a boost in agricultural exports, citrus and, 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 and stuff like that. Those are cyclical factors that are moving out of the system. So we are still a little bit protected because our balance of payments has been very positive, remarkably positive. That will quietly wind its way down and the rand will start weakening. That's just the way I see it. So, yes, it moved from 14.20 to 15 at one stage, but there's an underlying weaker bias in the currency at the moment. So, from now towards the end of the year, barring major upheavals, 15 or 15, maybe 16 is, is, is kind of our indicated target to our clients. You know, a lot of South Africans do ask and write and say, should I move? Can I move? Where do I move to? And, and, and there's a lot of limitations. One is your skills. Your skills have to be international. There are certain skills that are totally global. And if you have accountancy or actuarial studies or medicine or engineering, you can go and do it most parts of the world without any problem. That is as far as young people are concerned. They don't have assets yet. They've got their career ahead of them. Conversely, if you take the older generation, those who are close to retiring, they've built up some capital, they are doing the numbers and they're looking at what their investments in South Africa are worth in dollar terms. And they are waking up to the frightening prospect that over the last 10 years, South Africa has become very poor. Uh, They might have a wonderful house or two in South Africa, the pension fund, but do the conversion and that's just what I've been talking and writing for a long time. Our assets in South Africa have not grown in dollar terms. It's grown in rand terms, but in dollar terms, they've actually stagnated. And people are saying, I can't afford to immigrate uh, unless I can live in a, a, a pokey little flat in, in, um, in, 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 Hackney, in Hackney in London or whatever. And they say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather then move down to Valdivie or George or Sedgefield. But I still would like my purchasing power protected for future expenses. So as far as that's concerned, people are buying dollars in a massive, massive way. And the panic, did it happen? Did clients of yours, after what they saw uh, earlier this month, uh, start panicking and wanting to sell and wanting to leave at, at any cost? We had a number of phone calls, uh, especially people from Britain who said, we're going back. They've always kept their passport. They've always kept some links and maybe some money offshore, and they're simply saying, I'm going back to London. Now, whether that's a knee-jerk reaction or whether 
they take it seriously. It depends how you were affected by that. And we've had people from Godzilla Natal saying exactly the same. We are going to try set up business in Mauritius. So there has been an upsurge in people at least inquiring about getting a second passport. Suddenly people are asking about Malta and Grenada and Turks and Caicos and all those funny places that I don't I don't even know where they are. So, but Turks saying, and Caicos, crazy. Yeah, so people are looking at alternatives, and I think a lot of them will subside and, and, and not take it further. But there has been a massive uh, uh, interest. And the other, you know, we're not, that's not our main business, but people are asking us, start getting some of my money offshore and build a nest egg in case this happens. So this offshore nest egg thing is becoming mainstream. The open letter to President Ramaphosa penned last week by a business community member captured the zeitgeist, having been read by more than a quarter million people within a few days. The author, who goes by the pseudonym of Nimoller, wrote the following equally powerful letter. Dear Mr. President, my letter to you last week seemed to reflect what quite a few people were thinking, but no one had said aloud, at least not to you. Not that you have nothing else on your plate, but I have a bit more to say. Forgive my frankness. It is, or at least was, the South African way. On the positive side, you won't have to read between any lines. So here is some more advice you may care to hear. Start arresting more people for planning this insurrection. Sure, we don't want the NPA to mess it up, but for goodness sake, how much evidence do you need? The Zuma daughter incited violence. It's on Twitter. Go get her. Her twin encouraged people to loot responsibly. He really did. It's on YouTube. It's inconceivable that nothing has been done about them, and particularly the now famous 12. I'm sure there are others, many of them. Declare a state of emergency in KZN if you still feel anxious about the temperature on the ground. It doesn't have to be a national one. It's not draconian, it's sensible. They're a problem and we all know it. Reshuffle the cabinet for crying out loud. The RAT brigade lost. They have very little popular support and almost none from the very large middle ground. Your long game is over now. Surely you can muster up enough professionals with political clout to protect you as you purge your cabinet of these loathsome, incompetent, ineffectual people. Start reading the Riot Act to provincial public prosecutors. Because while we're on the subject of arrests, why haven't obvious crooks been arrested yet? Like certain politically connected thieves involved in the outrageous rip-off at VBS. It's clear that some provincial directors of public prosecutions won't play ball with Shamila Batoy and are refusing to prosecute. Find a way to replace them. Otherwise, she has no power and you know it, even if you haven't told the public that. Make sure that the DPP in the Free State has his ducks in a row. There's a lot at stake prosecuting Ace Magashule. And make sure they nail Edwin Sodi while you're about it, odious, corrupt, rent-seeking reptile that he is. Get the NPA to get a move on prosecuting Marcos Yusto, who still strolls around Hadmanis undisturbed and unperturbed. Enough. He's a crook. It's been four years now. You can't possibly need more evidence, PwC provided it all, or preparation time. Get Joester out of his mansion and into Polsmoor, and be sure to film his trial so we can all watch him go down. Speaking of people who haven't yet had their day in court, where is our deputy president? Private healthcare is still excellent here, at least for now, so why didn't he check into the closest mediclinic? And he leaves for Russia at the exact time of the looting. Odd that. A bit like the Ayatollah hanging out in Paris until the revolution was all over by the shouting. Make a phone call to David Unterhalter to apologize for the appalling anti-Semitism that reared its head during his interview by a certain member of the Judicial Service Commission. It was revolting. Tell him you strongly disapprove. And where was the Human Rights Commission? Asleep again? Shout at them. Stop already with the Cuban obsession. Have you ever visited there as a normal citizen? It's appalling. Surely, after 30 years, the ANC has repaid the favour of pre-democracy support from them. Enough now. It's a brutal, repressive regime that tramples on human rights. We don't need their help, nor their social, economic or political example. So rein in Lindiwe Sisulu. She's jaw-droppingly arrogant and stark-raving mad. Stop prioritising the employed and start worrying about the unemployed. The employed don't need your help. Enough with a stranglehold of labour legislation. Stop with this promotion of equality and prevention of unfair discrimination act. It's a disaster. 
disbelieve business if it says it broadly supports this new act because many of them don't. They're just too timid to withstand the accusation of being anti-transformation. Rather have some honest one-on-one conversations. Here's the headline. Modern South African capital is agnostic. It just doesn't care. What do you really think? That executives sit around in dark, smoke-filled rooms dreaming up new and imaginative ways to exclude black and women executives from their companies? Capital doesn't care, Mr. President. It just doesn't care. We are so critically short of skills in this country that even the most unreconstructed racist would concede that the pool was too small to discriminate. The fact is that we don't care if a job applicant is a dreadlocked, gay, disabled person who self-identifies as a Martian every alternate Thursday. We just want the skills and the talent and a propensity for hard work and a good attitude. We judge them on these things and the content of their character. The rest is really irrelevant. We don't think about it. So why do you insist on this ruinous policy which just further divides South Africans, is of questionable public or economic benefit, and only serves to chase skills away to foreign countries? It seriously isn't winning you any votes. Introduce us to a live beneficiary of affirmative action. I bet you can't. Because if you ask any black South African if they're in their job because of it, they'll take it as a deep insult. They'll assure you that only merit, skill, and ability played a role. So if it's so offensive, why have it as a public policy? If it's such a worthy pursuit, why do the courts find that calling someone an affirmative action appointment or quota player is racially offensive? Surely if your policy is aspirational and ethically defensible, beneficiaries should consider it a source of pride? Please do us all a favor and think deeply about the screaming hypocrisy of this. Get some real skill into the government, fast. Hire more people like your minister in the presidency. She is self-confident, assertive, smart, no-nonsense, and everything all your ministers should be. If you know what's good for you, chain her to her desk and refuse any attempt for her to leave. There must be more just like her. Find them. Hunt them down. Stop with the planning already. We have enough plans. You're like a field marshal who comes up with brilliant military strategy but has no battalions. Success lies in execution. So execute a Marshall Plan for South Africa because we sure as hell need one. Call in the best and brightest and don't drown them in politics, bureaucracy and brick walls like you've done to Martin Kingston. Ask Standard Bank to free up Sim Shabalala for a few months. He should have time on his hands now. Call in Dekhang Moseneke, Vincent Mafai, Malcolm Wyman, Shamil Yusub, Jay Naidu, Adrian Gore, Sipo Maseko, Cheryl Carolus, Calvo Mawela, Kurs Backett and yes... Even Trevor. There are many others. They are all brilliant, networked tacticians who only want what's best for the country. Get them on board for a few months. Their companies will spare them because there's so much at stake. Make that phone call. Give them some real power so they don't get frustrated and exit stage. Lose the National Democratic Revolution rubbish. It's long past its sell by date and it's destructive divisive, and so anachronistic that it's just plain ridiculous in a modern democracy. You're not a liberation party anymore. You're the damn government. Enough now. There is no revolution to win. You're in power. Grow up and behave like it. Sort out state security, for goodness sake. Bekitsele is just plain incompetent, and their SAPS is dire. Kela Sitole is even worse if that's possible, and unforgivably MIA during the looting. Ayanda Lordlaw doesn't exactly look like she's cracking her job either. They're so busy sticking knives in each other's backs that they're not doing the job they're paid for. Admit it. It's a mess. 400 billion rand a year on criminal intelligence and they couldn't spot the insurrection coming? Stop with this new gun control nonsense. What do you think citizens were armed with when they stood up to the looters and defended democracy? The only people who obey gun control laws are those who use them responsibly anyway. Clamp down on illegal firearms, particularly those circulating on the Cape Flats, largely gifted by rogue SAPS members. You know this to be true. And while I'm about it, what the hell are your people doing with Jeremy Veery and Andre Lincoln and a few others? They're the corruption-busting good guys. Where are their commendations? Nope, just years and years of targeted harassment by half-witted, underskilled, corrupt politically motivated morons in the SAPS leadership. Enough. Pick up the phone. Reel in the Competition Commission. 
You simply can't block a foreign acquisition on the basis that BEE would be diluted. What does that mean in practice? That black shareholders are stuck with their shareholdings and can never sell their shares unless it's to another black South African shareholder? You've just wiped out the value of their shareholdings for goodness sake. Not to mention the message you're sending foreign investors. Tell the commission to get out of the way and stop meddling in stuff that doesn't involve them. Stop giving groups and individuals a free pass on tax. The kind that's just sitting there laughing at you. Taxis, shabines, spazes. The illegal industries are thriving. Liquor, tobacco, gambling, textiles. Do something. The illegal markets for liquor and tobacco are nearly as big as the legal market now. How's that for a gangster state? It's a howler. Get Edward Kiswetter, an army of enforcers, to get out there on the streets and demand these guys pay what's due. No tax return? Simple. Close it down. Legal taxpayers have seriously had enough of paying Scandinavian levels of tax for virtually no return, when others casually flip a middle finger at the tax collector with no consequence. If they don't pay up, jail them. If you don't, tax morality will drop even further through the floor. Put Kiswetter back in his box when he talks to the dwindling number of law-abiding citizens. How dare he say he'll ask taxpayers nicely only once? No, just no. Tell your SARS commissioner to get down on bended knee and thank every taxpayer for their contribution and to genuflect the defeat of the top 1%. We have one of the heaviest tax burdens in the world. Without us, you'd be in real trouble and you could say goodbye to social stability. Kiswetter might be uncorruptible and have a stratospheric IQ, but he could do with a huge dose of humility. Tell Sasa grant beneficiaries the truth about where their money is coming from. It isn't the ANC. Over 30% of the population receives a grant, so don't you think there should be your Sasa grant courtesy of the taxpayer printed on every Sasa receipt? Stop opening your mouth to change feet. How could you defend MPs' salaries by saying that they struggle to make ends meet? On one million rand a year plus benefits? Are you serious? Most of the private sector have had deep cuts in their salaries during COVID with some losing their benefits altogether, not to mention those who actually lost their jobs or businesses. And these are people who are keeping the economy going, sustaining jobs and paying tax. Just how tone deaf are you? Couldn't you have just done a cuddle up with MPs and explained that on those salaries, they are in the top 4% of earners in SA, that they better just make do since the rest of us have blood on the floor? Come on, seriously. Stop people thinking that any criticism of the government is subliminal racism. That's genuinely juvenile. Most South Africans couldn't care less what colour the government is. They just want a clean government. Good services they pay for. Fair taxation. Respect. Law and order. The opportunity to exchange their skills for fair compensation. Fair treatment under the law. The basics. We don't much care about anything else. So tell them to grow up. Let me end by asking you a genuine question. Do you not actually realize that you've won? Because you sure as hell don't look like it. I don't mean the election. I mean the insurrection. Citizens across the board gathered to man the barricades, shoulder to shoulder. The bad guys were repelled. Sanity re-emerged. The RET brigade lost. South Africans stood together to defend not only their lives and property, but the constitution and the democratic state, the one you lead. So the RET gangsters lost the battle, but also the psychological one and the political one. It was a close-run thing at times, but the center held. I'm not in politics, there is a God, but you should know this from your previous life. In business, half the trick of successful leadership is behaving like a leader, and the other half is sounding like one. So why don't you? When your enemy is down, you don't start playing a long game of chess. You kick him. We don't see any evidence of kicking, and it's making us nervous. The attempted coup was an inflection point. It's not the time to drop the ball. Run with it. Get out of the Fresne bunker. Take the difficult decisions. Do a bit of shock and awe, and the momentum of resolute action will be unstoppable. Bring the country with you. All of us as equal citizens, start acting like a winner. A lot depends on it. Well, there's a story that's gone viral uh, on Biz News. I think last I looked, it was getting to 100,000 views already. 
ivermectin? Are we trusting a handful of experts at the potential cost of human life? Professor Colleen Aldous is the author of that article, and uh, she's with us now. Colleen, lovely talking with you. Uh, Professor, you're from the University of KwaZulu-Natal. What exactly uh, brought you into this whole debate on COVID? Because the last time we published anything on ivermectin, we got flamed by other academics. So it seems like you might be on a different side of the fence. Yes, I, I think I am on a different side of the fence. I was trained as a natural scientist, and I was trained to look at all the evidence and look at it from every angle. And since the beginning of this year, or since December last year, the regulatory authorities have consistently said there's insufficient evidence. And I've been monitoring the literature. The literature is building up. And we are losing people. People are dying. People are getting sick. Even with the vaccine, people are dying and getting sick. Um, We need a therapeutic. And there aren't any others available. The current treatment regimen is still once you've been diagnosed with COVID is go home. And if you get really sick, we'll take you up in hospital and intubate you and hope you don't die. Whereas from the research, it really looks that ivermectin given early on could prevent people from having to go to hospital. So that's where I've got involved is I do not believe there is insufficient evidence. The clinician scientists define evidence only by randomized control trials. And I believe in a pandemic that's inappropriate. What is a randomized control? What is a randomized control trial? A randomized control trial would be where you take two groups of people and the one group of people would get the drug and the other people would get a placebo. So if you get 10,000 people, 5,000 will get the drug, 5,000 a placebo, and you hope to see that more people in ivermectin will not go to hospital than in the other arm. I've got an ethical problem with that. If we look at the Nuremberg Code that came out after the Second World War, point number five says, if there's any indication that a death or disability can occur, you don't do that experiment. So I honestly believe that doing another randomized control now is flying in the face of the Nuremberg Code. I believe we've got enough other evidence. We've got safety um, publications. We've got mechanism of action. We know how the drug works. And we've got some randomized control trials that have been analyzed in a meta-analysis and a really good meta-analysis. And I know the stock answer is rubbish in, rubbish out, but that comes from ignorance about meta-analyses. There are scientists who know how to handle bias, know how to score these studies. And the Bryant et al. paper that came through last month It's clearly the best we've got now. And that points absolutely unambiguously towards the fact that ivermectin does reduce mortality and it does reduce morbidity and getting sicker. Professor Aldous, why are other academics arguing so strongly against ivermectin? And as I mentioned earlier, uh, when we publish anything on the the subject, we get flamed by these people who say that not only are we doing a disservice uh, to our readers, but actually we're spreading false information. I think there's a lot of false information going around from both, both sides. We had people last week saying that it caused liver damage, and I was able to debunk that in the in the press as well because I, mean, I, I just go to the WHO site on side effects and have a look at liver damage there for ivermectin. And there have been 95 cases of hepatobiliary injury in the last 30 years for ivermectin. I cannot believe that one doctor has got as many liver injuries as the WHO has found in 30 years. And liver injury is caused by the disease itself. And then I looked at the other drugs that are used in, um, in private hospitals, things like remdesivir and tocilizumab. If you look at their profile, they got a lot of liver injury. Maybe we should start at the beginning and tell us what ivermectin is, where it came from, and as you mentioned in your article, uh, how it won a Nobel Prize for Medicine. It was first discovered by Satoshi Amira, who was a scientist in Japan, and he sent a soil sample to Merck because Merck was looking at 
all sorts of things to try and find antibiotics, just like penicillin. So they were taking samples and studying them. And I think it's um, Bill Campbell, who also won the Nobel Award. He was the scientist at Merck who, who um, took that soil sample and discovered the, the avermectin. And so this group of molecules was developed. And initially, they found that it had a, a, a really good response to parasites in animals. So the first, um, the first organisms that received ivermectin were animals. But then the value in the human form was seen in the 80s. And um, they had a, a drug called mectazan from Merck, which was given to many people in the tropics who suffered from river blindness and elephantiasis, which are parasitic diseases. And because ivermectin basically wiped out those diseases in the tropical areas, it was termed a miracle drug. And if you think about whole villages going blind and getting a drug and then they're not going blind anymore, you can see where the term came from. And because of that, the um, discoverers, William Campbell and Satoshi Amura, got the Nobel Award in 2015. So it's not for the animal applications that the Nobel was given. It was definitely for the human applications because it changed the quality of life of so many populations. Mm. How many people have actually had ivermectin then since it was invented? I wouldn't know how many people have taken it, but the quote in the literature is 3.7 billion for anti-parasite disease. I mean, that must be Merck's, um, Merck's data on how many doses they gave out on the Mectazan program. But there'll be many more now. So what got you so riled up about all of this? You've got another life. You are like the rest of us. Uh, I guess we're all struggling under COVID, having to change, change our lives because of lockdowns, etc. Why did you, why, what about this makes you so hot under the collar? The fact that people keep saying there's insufficient evidence and the fact that people still die because of that. I was on a radio interview in January, the second, um, and that was the end of the second wave. And I'd calculated using Andrew Hill's figures at that point, how many people need not have died in that two weeks. And there was a shocked silence. Since then, there have been many more people who did not die, who died unnecessarily. If we go with the average of a reduction of 62% of in mortality, it means for every 100 people who died, 62 might still be alive and working and looking after their families today. That's what's riling me. And the fact that I am called incompetent by some people and when I try and speak to colleagues about it, they say, don't bring that up with me. And the fact that there's just such a closed mind to looking at the totality of evidence and people dying because of that. And if we, if we put ourselves two years into the future and look back at this moment, we can say that those people who say we're not allowing you to use ivermectin because we haven't had a randomized control trial as being guilty of passive genocide. That's what's got me all right, riled up. And the fact that there's so much misinformation from both sides. I mean, you, you get people coming in saying ivermectin is going to clear, clear up the, the pandemic, that it replaces um, the, the need for vaccines. That's absolute nonsense. We need the vaccines. The vaccines must come. But at the moment, they're not 100% effective. And we understand why. I understand the science of vaccines. You know, the, it's just going to get better. It didn't start at 100% efficacy. But while that is still happening, I don't want more people to die. And they are. 
Well, thanks for being with us tonight from me, Alec Hogg, and the other members of the Biz News team. We look forward to being back in your company again tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.